Thank you for listening to the Maranatha Free Lutheran Church Sermon Archive. It's our hope that this message would encourage you in your faith and would help you to get to know God's love, grace, and mercy in a personal way. If you have any questions on the sermon or would like to know more about Maranatha, please visit us on the web at maranathafreelutheran.com or call our church office at 218-498-2808. Thank you, and may God bless. Amen. Good morning, Maranatha. He is risen. Amen. I'll be the first to admit uh, that this text from Revelation 4 and 5 is a, is a different text for an Easter Sunday sermon. Traditionally on Easter Sunday, we spend time in one of the four gospel accounts retelling the glorious, the true narrative of, uh, of Jesus' resurrection from the grave. And, and to be sure, we're definitely going to spend time on that topic this morning, meditating on that truth, but we're going to do it from a different place. On Sunday mornings here at Maranatha during Lent, we've been looking at the seven letters to the seven churches in Revelation 2 and 3. And as Pastor Lloyd has led us through those, I know I've been blessed by them, and I hope you all have as well. So this morning, we're going we're gonna to jump to Revelation 4 and 5 and look at uh, kind of what happens next, really. And if you haven't already, I'd invite you to find that, those chapters in your Bible. It's page 967 in the Pew Bible there. And, and while there isn't time to dive deep into all the symbolism and all the meaning in each one of these details in Revelation 4 and 5, uh, we're going to focus in, instead on the Lord on his throne and then on his son, who is the, the conquering lion and the slain lamb. And in chapter 4, we get a, a glimpse into heaven's throne room, and we witness the Lord on his throne. And most scholars believe that the events that take place here in chapter 4 and 5 of Revelation form the, the crux of the entire book of Revelation. The most important part of the book of Revelation is found here. In a chaotic world full of doom, full of judgment, the Lord God Almighty is still on his throne. He is in charge. He always has been and he always will be. The Lord on his throne. And some of these words as we read them this morning from Revelation 4 and 5 will probably sound a little bit familiar. Uh, we just sang a lot of them. So I hope you uh, kind of maybe sing along with me in your head as I read. Uh, if you're able, would you stand this morning out of reverence for the word of the Lord? We'll start off and we'll read Revelation chapter 4 and then get into 5 uh, in a little bit. Revelation chapter 4, reading in Jesus' name. After this I looked, and behold, a door standing open in heaven. And the first voice, which I, heard, which I had heard speaking to me like a trumpet, said, Come up here, and I will show you what must take place after this. At once I was in the Spirit, and behold, a throne stood in heaven, with one seated on the throne. And he who sat there had the appearance of Jasper and Carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. Around the throne were 24 thrones, and seated on the thrones were 24 elders, clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their heads. And from the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. 
And before the throne were burning seven torches of fire, which are the seven spirits of God. And before the throne there was, as it were, a sea of glass, like crystal. And around the throne and on each side of the throne are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, and the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within. And day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne who lives forever and ever, the 24 elders fall down before him who is seated on the throne and worship him who lives forever and ever. They cast their crowns before the throne saying, Worthy are you, our Lord and God, to receive glory and honor and power for you created all things and by your will they existed and were created. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Heavenly Father, Lord, as we open up this text from Revelation 4, from Revelation chapter 5, you give us a glimpse into the throne room. You, O Lord, are seated on your throne where you are ruling and reigning and you are in control. And Father, as we, as we come into this throne room, we recognize that you are holy. You are holy, 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 and we are so unworthy. We thank you for the blood of your Son, Jesus, that cleanses us from all sin. Thank you for sending him here to die on the cross, to be our sacrifice, to be the atonement for our sin. Thank you for that forgiveness and cleansing that we have in the Lamb who was slain. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. You may be seated. In chapter 4, there are three different things that we are going to look at that tell us a little bit more about the Lord. And first is the Lord's incredible beauty, the Lord's incredible beauty. John said in verses 3 and then later on in verse 5, he said, And he who sat there, he who sat on the throne, had the appearance of jasper and carnelian, and around the throne was a rainbow that had the appearance of an emerald. From the throne came flashes of lightning and rumblings and peals of thunder. As John is invited and ushered into heaven's throne room, there must have been a million things that would have captured his attention, a million things to look at and to marvel, each one of them all too wonderful to describe. But the, but the center of attention, the focal point of it all, was the Lord God Almighty sitting on his throne. And John can't even really begin to describe to us the Lord and what he looks like, nor does he even really try. If he did, we, we might try to break the first commandment and create an idol or an image of the Lord. And besides, the Lord God is so wholly unlike anything that we might try to describe him as. Words, as useful as they are, would fail us. Many of you know me well enough to know that I love spending time outdoors in God's creation. And I've been blessed to be some very beautiful places over the years. And if you ask me to describe what those places were like, 
I would, I would falter. I could not adequately describe to you the, the, what those places look like. I, I could not describe the deep, rugged beauty, for example, of the Grand Canyon or the towering, majestic grandeur of endless mountain ranges or the simple elegance of a waterfall as it cascades down a cliffside. If I were to try to use just words to make those things come alive to you, I would, I would fail miserably. Words aren't enough. And pictures uh, even aren't enough as well. A picture doesn't capture the scope, capture the depth, capture the majesty and the grandeur of some of those places, right? And in the same way, there is no way that John can describe, fully describe to us the beauty and the majesty and the splendor of the Lord God. All that John can say is that the Lord God looked like something, (laughs) The Lord God had the appearance, John said, of, of jasper, of, of carnelian. Jasper in, in John's day what was most likely a stone that was as clear as silver, quite possibly diamond-like, all sparkly and brilliant. And carnelian was a blood-red stone. Now, John isn't saying that the Lord God was like a blood-red diamond in color. Again, John is trying to describe the indescribable. And he uses finite human language to describe something, again, that our indescribable Lord God Almighty, something really has to give. In his commentary on Revelation, Lutheran scholar Louis Brighton put it this way. He said, Even as light flashed forth through and from the stones with beauty and brilliance, so do the majesty and glory of God flash forth from the appearance of the one seated on the throne. The appearance of God's glory reflects the brilliance of God's person and presence in the same way that precious stones reflect the rays of the sun. And so again, John tries to describe as best as he can the beauty of the Lord using these these stones and other natural phenomena like lightning and thunder that, that emanate from the throne to reveal to us God's power, God's majesty, God's awesomeness. And as John does, we get a glimpse, just a glimpse of the Lord and who he is. John is saying, you know the way a diamond ring sparkles when the sunlight hits it just right? Yeah, that's, a, that's just a glimpse of the beauty of the ma- and the majesty of the Lord. But we also get a picture in these verses of the remarkable subjects who worship this indescribable God. And while John doesn't dare describe the Lord on his throne, he does begin to tell us about those who worship the Lord Look again at Revelation 4.4 4, or listen as well. Around the throne were 24 thrones and seated on the thrones were 24 elders clothed in white garments with golden crowns on their head. So one group that's pictured for us is this group of 24 elders and the, these elders are dressed in white, signs of, of purity. Uh, and they're wearing golden crowns, signs of their royalty, attesting to, to the reality that they reign with the Lord God. And throughout Revelation, as, as you go on and you continue to read, you find that these 24 elders are leading uh, heaven in the worship of the Lord. They are the ones who are falling down before the Lord's throne, casting their crowns down before him. 
and there are various interpretations as to who these 24 elders are or, or what they represent. Some scholars believe that they are the fulfillment of the 24 divisions of the Old Testament uh, priesthood of Aaron, being the, the heavenly reality that the earthly things were, were copied after. Uh, others believe that these 24 elders were a special group of, of angels who worshiped the Lord. I tend to agree with the interpretation that says these 24 elders are, are representative of the entire church, the capital C church, all of God's people across time and space. Scholars arrive at that conclusion because the number 24 is, is symbolic of the 12 tribes of Israel in the Old Testament and then the 12 apostles in the New Testament. 12 plus 12 is 24. I know it's the weekend and math is hard, right? But you see that, right? That means they represent all the saints in both of the covenants. Uh, just as the elders are in robes of white symbolizing their purity, so we too, brothers and sisters, have been made pure by the blood of Christ. We've been given white robes, just like Jesus promised to the church in Sardis in chapter 3, verse 4. He also proclaimed and promised to the churches of Thyatira and Laodicea that they would sit on thrones and judge the nations. These elders, John says, are sitting on 24 thrones, ruling and reigning with Christ. And this is us. As part of the church, as part of Christ's bride, we are represented, I believe, in these 24 elders, cleansed from our sin, wearing white robes, falling down in majesty and awe and worship and adoration of the Lord God Almighty. And there's another group that surround the throne and worship God. There are four living creatures. John says this in chapter five, 4, verse 6, And around the throne, and on each side of the throne, are four living creatures full of eyes in front and behind. That's just mind-boggling to picture right there, right? <laughs> the first living creature like a lion, the second living creature like an ox, the third living creature with the face of a man, the fourth living creature like an eagle in flight, and the four living creatures, each of them having six wings, are full of eyes around and within, and day and night they never cease to say, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. What a sight to behold. Again, words fail John. He can't exactly describe to us what he is seeing because these things, these, these creatures are so remarkable. John can only say they are like something, like a lion, like an ox, like a man, like an eagle. These four living creatures probably represent all of creation, standing before God's throne, singing out his praises. And unfortunately, we don't have time to go deep into the symbolism of these living creatures. We're here this morning not to study them, but to study the one that they are worshiping. And that is their job, to worship the Lord. The 24 elders, the four living creatures surround the Lord's throne, offering and giving him this continual praise that is due to his name. And as they do, they declare the Lord's everlasting reign. His reign is everlasting because he is the one who was and is and is to come. And he is the one who lives forever and ever. When the four living creatures declare that the Lord God is the one who was and is and is to come, they're declaring his timelessness. As the one who was, the Lord God existed before creation began. There was never a time when the Lord God was not. 
he has always been. And it's often asked, okay then, well, what has the Lord God been doing since, since before creation? What was he doing before Genesis 1-1? And the answer to that question is kind of mind-blowing once you sit and you think about it. Before the Lord God created everything, what was there? And don't say nothing, because even nothing is something. Before God created everything, there was just God. The Lord God wasn't simply floating around in the, in the nothingness of space because even the nothingness of space is something that had to have been created. Before the Lord God spoke creation into existence, there was just him. And there was no time for him to be doing nothing or anything in because time had not been yet created. Time came into existence when creation did. In the beginning, God created. In the beginning was the Word. The Lord God Almighty, the Holy, Holy, Holy One, is the one who was. The Lord God is also the one who is. He is a God who exists in the here and now. He didn't create the universe and then just walk away from it, abandoning it, absent to our thoughts and our attitudes, to our joys and our sorrows. No, He is here with us. The God who is, is the I am that I am. We know his character. We know his nature because he has revealed it to us in his word. Uh, one of my favorite places to go look at the character of the Lord is Exodus chapter 34. And there the Lord tells us about himself as he proclaimed his name to Moses. The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness keeping steadfast loves for thousands of generations, for giving iniquity and transgression and sin, but who will by no means clear the guilty. This is who God is. This is what we know he is like. And the Lord God is also the one who is to come. That means that, that what the Lord God has always been and is now, he will always be. We as humans are, are fickle creatures, aren't we? Our thoughts and our opinions are always changing. Uh, in fact, around the dinner table this week, my, my daughter said that her favorite animal is, is beginning to change. It's no longer a bunny rabbit, but it's a panda. And my son said his favorite color is starting to change from green to blue. <laughs> right? Talk about going through existential crises, right? <laughs> we, we humans, we change. The Lord God... He never changes. He will always be what he has always been. We can continue to trust in him because of his faithful track record in the past. Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was and who is and who is to come. Uh, there's so much that be, could be said about the Lord who was and is and is to come. We could talk on and on about his holy, holy, holiness. We could talk for a long time about his, his creative might and power. But I want to focus just on one more characteristic of the Lord's throne and of his reign. And it's the stillness of the sea. It's almost a bit of an afterthought, but there's a lot of depth to that phrase there. Uh, verse 6 tells us that before the throne, in front of the throne, there was as if it were a sea of glass, like crystal. And in Hebraic thought, the sea was a very scary place. 
Throughout their history, the Jews had limited access to the sea, limited access to the ocean. The Philistines, the mortal enemy of Israel, had always been a seafaring people, and the Philistines excelled at keeping Israel away from the sea, from the coast. So the sea became a dark, mysterious, dangerous place that was always raging and always churning, full of sea monsters like the Leviathan. To the Israelites, then, the sea came to represent chaos and evil. The sea represented our sin, which separates us from a holy, holy, holy God. And that is, by the way, why the sea was in front of the throne. Before the throne, our sin separates us from God. However, the the sea here in Revelation chapter 4 is quiet. It's not raging or swelling. The sea is as calm as glass. Uh, Lewis Brighton put it this way, its crystal-like stillness reminded John that what had separated him from the glory of God's presence, the turmoil of his sin and God's judgment, is now stilled and quiet. For John knows that Christ has conquered Satan taking and taken away the raging torment of his guilt and the fearsome wrath of God's judgment. Amen. As Paul said in Romans chapter 5, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. What is raging in your life? What, what sins or struggles keep swelling up in your heart? What is churning deep within your soul? This Easter Sunday, let Jesus still the chaos within. Let him heal your brokenness. Let him become your peace. He has conquered for you. His death was for you. His resurrection proves that beyond a a shadow of a doubt that the ransom that was paid on Good Friday covers you and stills that raging sea within you. Amen? Amen. Let's go on to chapter 5. As John observes the throne and then the one who sits on it, he sees a scroll in the Lord's hand. Again, look at chapter 5, beginning at verse 1. We'll read the whole chapter, but I won't have you stand. (laughs) Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll, written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and to break its seals? And no one in heaven or on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll or to look in it. And I began to weep loudly because nobody was found worthy to open the scroll or to look in it. And one of the elders said to me, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. And between the throne and the four living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. And he went and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who was seated on the throne And when he had taken the scroll, the four living creatures and the twenty-four elders fell down before the Lamb, each holding a harp and golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song, 
saying, Worthy are you to take the scroll and to open its seals, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you have made them a kingdom and priests to our God, and they shall reign on the earth. And then I looked, and I heard around the throne and the living creatures and the elders the voice of of many angels numbering myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands saying with a loud voice worthy is the lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing and i heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and in the sea and all that is in them saying to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, be blessing and honor and glory and might forever and ever. And the four living creatures said amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. Amen. Just as there is so much going on in chapter 4, there's so much detail here that we could cover it for a really long time. But I want to keep the big picture this morning uh, before us. Easter, that, that conquering lion who is the slain lamb. In, a, in about a month or so, uh, Saturday, May 6, King Charles III will officially be coronated as King of England. And with all the pomp and ceremony and pageantry that only the British can muster, a crown will be placed on his head, a scepter will be put into his hands, and Charles will officially become king. And not much will change for us here in America, right? <laughs> But chapter 5 of of Revelation is, if you will, the the coronation of King Jesus. Many scholars believe that the events here in in chapter 4 and in chapter 5 took place as soon as Jesus ascended into heaven, as we confessed in the Apostles' Creed this morning, where he is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty, and he is ruling, he is reigning through his gospel. And, And John hearing the praises that the four living creatures and the 24 elders uh, offer up, John turns his attention back to the throne and sees the one who's sitting on it. And there he sees in the Lord God's right hand a scroll. And it's described in in verse 1 as being written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. So what was on the scroll? That is the big question. And in the Old Testament, Ezekiel and Daniel were were both given scrolls from the Lord that that contained the words of the Lord on them. And Ezekiel, in his vision, was told to eat it. And Daniel was told to seal it up, to lock it up so that nobody could read it. Those scrolls contained God's will and direction for the future written down for his people. And so the scroll here, as theologian Robert Mounts put it, contains the full account of what God in his sovereign will has determined as the destiny of the world. This means that on that scroll was God's plan for what would unfold. It contained prophetic messages of what would soon take place. And unfortunately, the message could not be made known. The scroll was sealed, locked up with seven seals on it. And in the New Testament era, uh, seals were used on letters like scrolls and other important documents to keep the contents uh, safe from unlawful usage. 
Usually they were made of wax and imprinted on the document or the seals were made up of, of cords of thread that were affixed with wax. Seals made sure that the right people uh, opened them. If you received a letter or a scroll with the seals broken, then you would know that the mailman or maybe somebody more nefarious had been reading your mail. And all sorts of documents were sealed, property rights, business transactions, last wills and testaments. And in fact, they found a, a scroll in Judea that dated around the time of A.D. 100, which is right around the time that John wrote Revelation. And this particular scroll that was found was sealed with seven threads, each with the name of a witness on it. This scroll then could not be legally opened unless all seven witnesses were present, each to break their own seal. And so an angel, a mighty angel, gives this invitation to come and to break the seals on the scroll and to open it. However, no one was found who could open the scroll. Nobody was found worthy, holy enough, pure enough to open the scroll. Nobody was of, of high enough ethical or moral character. Not even, not even one of God's angels could lay claim to opening up that scroll. No one was worthy. No one had earned the right to stand before God and lay claim to that. And so John weeps. And I think we can hardly blame him. Here it is, the plan of God, about to be made known, only to be stopped before it can be started. <laughs> no one was found worthy to open it. However, there was some good news, right? One of the elders, one of the 24 elders who was praising the Lord, interrupts John's weeping and points him to Jesus. And he says in verse 5, Weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and its seven seals. There is one, John is told, there is one who is worthy, one who has conquered, one who is able to break the seals and to open up the scroll. And the elder identified the worthy one as the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. And these are messianic prophecies, messianic promises uh, and names for the Savior who was to come. The lion represents power and authority. The lion was the symbol of kings. And coming from the tribe of Judah refers to this Savior's humanness as he, as he came from one of Judah's descendants. The one who's worthy is also called the root of David. This is the acknowledgement that the Messiah had roots going way back before King David. It kind of reminds me of Jesus' statement in John 8 to the crowd, Before Abraham was, I am. And so John turns and looks at this lion, but instead of seeing a conquering powerful lion, what does he see? He sees a lamb. And not just any lamb, but listen to this description of this lamb. Before the throne and before the living creatures and among the elders, I saw a lamb standing as though it had been slain with seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. What a strange lamb. <laughs> Let's start at the back and work forward. Thankfully, John interprets us the, the seven eyes. He says those are the seven spirits of God. And earlier in Revelation chapter 1, we have that identified for us as the Holy Spirit. Through the Holy Spirit, the Lord God is everywhere present. 
Continuing to work backwards, then horns were a sign and a symbol of, again, power and authority. And seven is the number of perfection. The lamb has perfect power, perfect authority. The most unique characteristic about the lamb, however, is that the lamb was standing, but it looked as if it had been slain. This lamb had all the characteristics, all the marks of having been slaughtered. Its neck was cut, probably covered in blood. But yet this slain lamb was not dead. He was standing before the throne. And of course, what John sees is a vision of our crucified and risen Savior, Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God who was slain for you on the cross. As he hung on the cross, Jesus took your sin upon himself. He died the death that you deserve, dying in your place and on your behalf. His death, in his death, Jesus, the perfect, sinless, spotless lamb of God, became sin for you. He was slain. He was slaughtered for you. Jesus died on what we now call Good Friday, but we need to remember that the context of, of the Israelites that surrounded Jesus uh, and his death. They were celebrating the, the Passover, which was a, a festival that looked back on the time when the Lord God miraculously and powerfully led his people, the Israelites, out of Egypt. For, for nine plagues, Pharaoh had stubbornly refused to let the Israelites go. Uh, but then the Lord God said that the firstborn of every household would die unless the blood of the lamb was put, painted on the doorposts of their house. And then the angel of death passed through uh, Egypt there and passed over the houses that had been covered by the blood. And the Israelites, from that time forward, whenever they partook of the Passover meal, they would remember the time that the lamb died in their place. In the Jesus Storybook Bible, uh, Sally Lloyd-Jones summarized the Israelites' attitude of this slain Passover lamb in this way. The lamb died instead of us. The lamb died instead of us. And so, yes, the, the Passover meal looked back on the time when God delivered Israel from Egypt. Uh, but it also, and I'd argue probably primarily, looked forward to the time when the true Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, died instead of us. He took your place, bearing your sin, dying for you. The Lamb of God, however, did not stay dead, did he? After Jesus was crucified, his body was removed from the cross, placed in a tomb. And for a few days as the Jews celebrated the Passover, it looked as if the story of the Lamb was over. He was dead. He was buried. However, as we read in our gospel lesson this morning, death was not the end, was it? No. When the women arrived at the tomb early on the first day of the week, it was empty. Two angels announced to them the good news, the glorious news that he has risen from the dead. He was no longer slain, but he was alive. And then Jesus appears to Mary, and then later on to the disciples, and all who see, believe, and worship him. And Jesus would spend the next 40 days visiting people, showing himself to them as the risen Savior. You know, without the resurrection of Jesus from the dead, Good Friday and the cross mean nothing. 
If Jesus had not risen from the dead, then death would have won. And as Paul says, we would still be in our sins. But praise the Lord, the tomb is still empty. Jesus has risen from the dead and he is alive forevermore. He is in heaven standing at the right hand of the Father right now. And we can rejoice in that truth, not just on one day of the week, or year, not just on one day of the week, but every day. Our crucified and risen Lord and Savior Jesus Christ is alive forevermore. Amen? Amen. Back to our text here. The, the, the lamb that was slain, again, is alive forevermore, and he is now coronated, and he takes the scroll, and one by one, he opens the seals. And if you've ever read Revelation, you know what's about to happen, right? You know that the rest of Revelation is the unfolding of the plan of God, written down on the scroll. And as the first four seals are broken, uh, they, it is... Um, uh, yeah, as they're unleashed, as they're opened, uh, the four horsemen, as they've come to be known of the apocalypse, are released, unleashed, right? Con- conquest, war, famine, death. And we're not going to get into the various interpretations of Revelation, who the four horsemen are, or anything like that. Um, we just don't have time. But whatever your eschatology is, whatever your understanding of these last times happen to be, there, there's pretty much uniform consensus that the opening of these seals brings the calamity and strife and violence. However, brother and sister, notice this. As the scroll is opened, who is the one who is doing the opening of the scrolls? It's the Lamb, isn't it? Yeah, and who's still sitting on his throne, ruling and reigning over it all? It's the Lord. As the scrolls are opened, the Lord God is still in control. He is still in charge. And that fact gives me hope. As we read and we hear of of bad news piled on top of bad news, piled on top of bad news, we know that the Lord is still in control. Nothing happens that is outside of his purview. Sadly, however, this is a reality that we begin to lose uh, when we encounter things on a daily basis, maybe things like runaway inflation and we struggle to make ends meet or, or the fighting and strife within the context of a marriage or the death of a loved one, whether that death is, is sudden or expected or we hear again of, of school shootings or, or a society that drifts further and further away from Christ and, and we wonder, where is God in all of this, if he is really all-knowing and all-powerful and all-loving, and if he is still on his throne, why are these bad things still happening? These things, I believe, serve as an all-too-often reminder that this is not the way it's supposed to be. Sin and, and death and violence are enemies, foreign enemies that have invaded God's perfect creation. But even that, even that God knew and he allowed. And he has in his infinite wisdom and love, he has a plan to make all things new, defeating once and for all sin and death and the devil and to restore all things to perfect harmony with himself. We've been reading a lot from the beginning of the book of Revelation, but I want you to listen to these words from the end of the book of Revelation, the end of the story. Revelation chapter 21, verses 1 through 5, and these are 
uh, the verses for the fly convention, youth, by the way, who are going to the fly convention. And then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will wipe away every tear from their eye, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be any mourning, nor crying, nor pain anymore, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Amen. So as you go home this morning or go on your way to join family and friends, go on your way rejoicing. The tomb is still empty. Our Lord Jesus Christ is the conquering lion and the slain lamb. He has defeated death, conquering it for you. He was slain for you. Death could not hold him, however. He rose from the dead and is alive forevermore. He is the king still in control no matter how dark things may seem. Our Lord has a plan to set all things right. And to that we say, Amen, Maranatha, come Lord. Father God, again, thank you for the day. Thank you for the truth that the tomb is still empty and that, Jesus, you have been slain for us. Your blood has purchased us worthy are you to receive all of our wor- our worship and our praise and our adoration it's in the name of jesus that we pray amen